know I haven't been doing this for very long, and it still feels kind of weird to be talking into this microphone like I know you, like you're my friend, but I think you are my friend. You're my audience. That's super weird. Is it weird to say that? I don't know. Point is, it's Colin K. Bills. <laughs> He's my first lighting designer. I'm a lighting technician. It was really, really fun to sit down with Colin uh, just before Christmas and talk about lighting things like with what animates lighting the ideas behind it and the and what leads into theater and ritual and uh and all kinds of fun super intellectual stuff that i don't usually get to jam out to at work when i'm turning a wrench so that was really really excellent i enjoyed this conversation i hope you will enjoy this conversation as well there's not much for me to say i'm in the middle of tech so i gotta get this done colin's gonna do the originalist coming up um he is also an artistic um company member of Woolly Mammoth, so you should check out whatever the hell they are doing. And he is also a conspirator with Dog and Pony DC, so as per usual, uh, if they're doing anything, you should totally check them out. I'll post links to all of that in the show notes and stuff, and uh, I gotta get to bed. I got tech in the morning for the show, where I'm doing some crazy things with projections. Thanks for joining me. It's episode 11. It's I'm Aaron Teachman. This is Exit the Stage Door, and it's Colin K. Bills. Like, are we doing this? <laughs> it's working. It's working. So, let's get it started. Are we doing this? We are now officially doing this. <laughs> and before we get into your prompts, I have yeah. I have a promise to keep. Yeah. Um, from uh, I have a question from one of my previous interviewers, uh, Rachel Grossman. She wanted to know why you scheduled this interview the day before her birthday. Uh, it was really the first day we were both free. <laughs> <laughs> Quite frankly, Aaron, and my shopping is done. Oh, there we go. Okay, that is a, a very reasonable reason for that. I hope uh, Rachel is satisfied with that answer. <laughs> she probably won't get to hear it until late in January, but um, a that's, promise has been fulfilled. So that's great. Why does she even care? Like, as long as it wasn't on her birthday. <laughs> no, that's why I was curious. And she's about not that. here, so. <laughs> It was really funny because when we met at um, Port City Java, she didn't know that we had settled on a date. Mm. So it was very, and then I, I, at the time, I didn't know that you were married. So right. it's like, oh, that's funny. He's, we're going to talk too. And here we are. And here we are and talking. her office. This is very exciting. And normally she would be in there. <laughs> this is perfect. Yeah. I don't want to ruin the surprise by actually asking <laughs> the question in her presence then. That wouldn't be fair. Well, she would just scream from the other room. <laughs> Her answer, whatever that might be. <laughs> uh, so your prompt, I'm probably not going to get it right. Um, but which one? I gave you like four. Yeah, yeah. Um, the one, the the most recent one, which I think is really interesting because um, you're talking about in. Uh, the actual fact of lighting up literally dark days, yeah, how that influences ritual, mm-hmm. and 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 what that, the stories that we tell ourselves, and how we use light to tell those stories, right? Uh, particularly in this like solstice slash Hanukkah slash yep. Christmas, Christmas season, yeah. Uh, that's a really interesting question because. I don't often, and this is going to lead into the discussion about community, lighting for community events as well, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, But I find that I I was stumped for a little bit about this because I don't usually get a chance to think about why I'm doing anything with lighting. 
usually I have to find out why that lamp isn't on and why that scroller isn't working and I'm just lost in the details of making this rig work. Well, you're just into the technical. Yeah, it's true, and that's... Minutia. I, I, uh, I would love to get into the more of the philosophical side in general, right. which is why uh, that question is so interesting. So what, what specifically prompted you to... What specific thought was like the kernel of... Well, I mean, there's the, the, the fact that <laughs> it is the 22nd of December, and yesterday <laughs> was the solstice. Um, we're on the seventh day of Hanukkah, and Christmas is uh, three days from now. And uh, this is, I don't think anyone will argue, uh, one of the most depressing times of the year yeah. for many people. Um, it's certainly been uh, not today and not like this week, for me, a depressing time of year, but has been in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and I have, as a lighting designer, have come to acknowledge and understand that the reason it is so depressing for me, and I'm going to guess that it's so depressing for most of the world, <laughs> is that it's just that there's not enough light. There's yeah, just so not enough sunlight. Um, and we have these holidays from pre-Christian times on that are you know around the world, not just in the West, mm -hmm. not just in the West, um, that are about bringing light back to the world at the end of the year, at the end of the calendar year, as the solstice comes. And I mean, the reason is that we need. We need the light. We need we need the cheerful, and it's not just light; it's cheerful light, right? Yes. Um, so it's not just it's candles, right? Exactly. It's, yeah. it's it's warm, yeah. Christmas lights. It's you know it's yeah it's bonfires, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, and it starts at Halloween. Like that's Guy Fox, all that. Like that's when it starts. You know, we start to do all that stuff, and it continues. Like the Persians have this. Uh, uh, it's called Nauruz, which is, uh, they light bonfires to welcome the spring. Oh, So it's okay. like the end of needing to do that. Mm. I, it's, it's interesting that you bring up spring because the first thought that I had when really starting to like delve into this was, because you specifically mentioned ritual, is one of the rituals that is routinely considered the most striking by certain European people, which is the Christian not specifically Christian, the specifically Catholic practice of gathering in the pre-dawn before mm -hmm. Easter. Yeah. And, yeah. and how almost everything about the way that cathedral worked was designed to welcome the sunlight, in, yeah. Yeah. particularly at that time. So the, the, the flooding of a completely dank, dark place with bright, beautiful sunlight. Yep. Yep. I mean, you know, there's midnight services on Christmas yep. like there's all of these events that acknowledge the time of day in relation to the celebration mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that's and in these ones in these celebrations that happen at in the winter or the late fall or early spring it has to do with either bringing light into a space or letting light come into the space which is what you just talked about mm -hmm. uh, and that's, it just feels so great. It just feel, it just makes people feel better. Yeah. 
to have warm light flood into a space. It ha- it's the true in theater. It's true in a church. It's true uh, in the morning, mm-hmm. just outside. It's true after a storm. Like, it's just... It's something we need, whether we know it or not. Um, and certainly I've found that by understanding that I need it, and that we all need it, it's helpful to just provide right. <laughs> to, to be the bringer, like light right? the goddamn candles right. <laughs> <laughs> and celebrate yeah. the holidays even if I don't believe in all of the other sure, attendant yeah. beliefs you know I, I mean there's a menorah sitting here I'm not Jewish Rachel's Jewish mm. uh, not really um, <laughs> I'm more interested in the in the in the um, in the Hanukkah candles than she is because I just like the ceremony of lighting them yeah. and then watching them diminish to nothing over mm-hmm. the course of a mm-hmm. few hours I mean that's part of and just and just living in that contemplative space like like these these particular Hanukkah candles take like two and a half hours oh that's like the length of a play I mean that's yeah. like you know yeah. what I mean like yeah. that's the there it's all it's like the intended burn time of the candles is intentional for the amount of time we're willing to sit and contemplate something mm-hmm. or enjoy enjoy a time together, whether it's dinner or sitting and reading or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever that is. Um, yeah. I mean, that has nothing to do with theater except it has everything to do with theater. No, I, yeah, I think it does. I, it's, I love when random events in a person's life like come together yeah. in strange ways. And that I just read this book, The Night Train to Lisbon. That sounds familiar, they, but I couldn't tell you what it is. It's just a, this guy, this Swiss guy, um, wrote a book about uh, Latin slash classical, Greek classical language instructor who meets a woman who's about to kill herself on a bridge. Uh, she, speaks, she speaks only Portuguese. Uh, he saves her. She gives him a phone number, mm-hmm. which he never calls. Um, but it inspires him to go get a Portuguese book and start to learn Portuguese and then discovers this author, um, Amadeo de Prado, who just speaks to him. He, he's, he randomly throws it open to the book, um, has the shop owner read him in, in Swiss German, like, what, what was happening here? And it's like immediately said something about him as a 50-year-old who has never left Bam and he knew he had to find out the guy who wrote this. And so he goes to Lisbon and and does this, and he discovers that Prado is, um, it's, it's, it's a social history of Portugal and like the fact that there was a dictator, a brutal dictatorship in Portugal sure. for a lot longer than people, yeah. particularly in America, would, would remember until the mid-70s. Yeah. And that this guy had saved the life of someone who is a notable butcher for the for the regime and uh, regretted it and became a member of the resistance as a result of that. So uh-huh. he finally tracks down his family, who the people who were left over, and discovers that Amadeo, when he was like eighteen in school, wrote this. He was going; he was attending a Catholic school in a very conservative fascist regime, mm-hmm. and he gave this speech about how he did not believe in God, but he didn't want to live in a world without churches. Sure, yeah, right. That's a long way back, uh, but yeah, it's where the, f- the form, like whether or not you agree with specific content of it, there is, it exists because 
it's deliberately designed to touch on something that is resonant within the culture around it. Sure. Well, you mean churches or Church, religion in general? Religion, the ceremonies yeah. around it, but yeah. ceremonies in general, like. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's intended to touch. It's intended to touch the heart and the soul, and nothing, you know, something that uh, literature can't necessarily do. It's just mm -hmm. ultimately, it's too intellectual. Even the most emotional stuff is too intellectual because it has to. It has to funnel through the brain yeah. somehow. Whereas, you know, incantations in a foreign language, you just you meaning is meaning. There's no meaning. Right. The meaning is all. I mean, there's no literal meaning. The meaning is all felt. Yeah, in the performance yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. And in the sound of it. In the sound, right, yeah. And in the whatever the warmth of the space is, and whatever's in the air, incense or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, and I didn't grow up Catholic or anything. <laughs> I just, I, you know, in one level I wish I did grow up, like, you know, going to Latin masses. Uh, but... I certainly yearn for that level of that level of, of ritual, just on a on a weekly mm -hmm. on a regular basis. On a regular basis, not yeah. a weekly basis, but on a regular basis. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, I will say that like my upbringing in Protestant churches, there was so much singing mm -hmm. and so much uh, communal singing. That's actually the most important part. Right. That that is what that was the ritual that I yearned for weekly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it was a way to just kind of like throw yourself into it and it didn't matter if you were good at it or not right um, just being a part of it and being a part of a group of people who in fact weren't good at it necessarily <laughs> like right. that was part of it you know that yeah. you would just you were just in you were just in it and doing it. And it didn't matter what the result was, other than that you were doing it together. Right. And that's, you know, that's that's great. You know, that's, as long as you are willing to give into it. Right. To submit to it. It's, I mean, well, in that tradition, C.S. Lewis talks about that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, why he never, for whatever reason, he, he still loved the Catholic churches and he loved the Church of England's. Because he didn't have to think about it, but he, he could just do it and right. let that process free right. his his conscious mind from from that that part of mm -hmm. it which is interesting uh, ironically i say that a lot that's dumb um uh i find myself doing that a lot when i'm actually watching shakespeare <laughs> giving into the language with regardless of meaning yeah because the ceremony of it if i think i mean shakespeare is twisty and i believe now nah, i i i, I We'll call myself an apostate on that front. <laughs> I don't believe that he's like a genius because every word that he wrote is perfectly structured or whatever. I think he's a genius because he wrote well quickly and right. didn't need it to be perfect because it very right. decidedly is not. The plots are horrible often. Um, Predi well, they're predictable. And, and certainly else. predictable yeah. and almost inevitably cribbed from somebody else. Yeah. And if you dig into the structure of the words that the characters are saying, the sentence makes often even sure. even when it's not in the mouths of a fool it doesn't make any sense like that's there's like a triple negative in there and i don't i don't know where you're supposed to go but spoken in the flow of the event you still understand the gesture of 
of what was what was intended and i don't think it works on the page at all yeah i mean i i i i won't admit to being as swept up in it in a religious way like that except my very first encounters with shakespeare mm. on a professional level right um which were luckily we're in we're in stratford um, wow. And I was, uh, what's the one? The Swan. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the, the old, the oldie timey theater, uh, in Stratford. And I was, I remember, uh, we were watching Henry VIII. And, you know, it's all about the political build up to the legitimacy of Elizabeth's reign. Right. right. So, um, but there is, the scene where they're, I don't even know what they're, are they christening the child or whatever, but they're basically uh, publicly legitimizing Elizabeth's mm. Elizabeth's uh, right to the throne. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was because the theater was warm that night or like just the delivery was so good, but by the time they got to the point where the entire cast was to yell Elizabeth in unison. Enough of the audience had been swept up into it that because we knew what the right, fi- you, what the final right, word was going to be you, it was Elizabeth. <laughs> That's the whole fucking point. Yeah. Um, that we all we were there with it and mm, yeah. and came in in unison with wow. Um, and we were really lulled into the ceremony of what effectively was uh, a baptism, I guess, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. Uh, and that's, I, I, and I'm, I'm saying that because I think that's a factor of the space. Sure, Which yes. is its own kind of church. Um, certainly sacred. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the material, and then the characters, you know, all of that coming together. And then the fact that it was, you know, like one of those we had watched it was I mean it was it was a part of a class so it was like oh, it, yeah. we were on like the fifth mm. show of the the fifth different production of the weekend right yeah um, <laughs> just goddamn tight um, but you know like and just like submitted to it submitted to yeah. the play as audience members which that doesn't ha- happen it's pretty rare yeah <laughs> at all it never happens and <laughs> But in that case, I think that was ultimately the intended mm. result. Mm-hmm. Like if I can't, I mean, I if at the Globe the entire audience had said Elizabeth with the characters, I wow, that would have been a real coup. Yeah, yeah, political, a real political for sure, coup. yeah, coup. Uh, yeah, so that's the only time that I've been swept up in that way. Mm-hmm. By Shakespeare, I've been you know, and I've I've always you know, I've when it's good, I have enjoyed it as as theater for what it is. Sure, yeah, uh, but but in the ritualistic way, that's the only time. Yeah, it hasn't happened in a while, mostly because <laughs> if I see like we ran, like, does it happen in any theater performance? Oh no, that I've never actually witnessed uh, or been a part of an audience where that anything like that has happened when everyone has been on that much on the same page. Yeah. It's really hard at uh, 
I don't know, some, yeah, something has to be in the air. Some other uh, ingredient, like being at, yeah. at Swan, has to like be thrown into the pot because just some random theater seeing Henry VIII certainly wouldn't right. <laughs> bring right. you to... Yeah, or something else, you know, something happening outside. Outside of it, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of community events do you design for? Oh, okay, great. So this is, this actually gets back to, like, the candles and all that. So I have been for 14 years now uh, the production designer for the Washington Rebels Society. Oh. The Rebels is a group that does, uh, they really only do one fully produced show a year, which is the Christmas show. Um, that is, you know, I always describe it as a combination between Ren Fair and church and Christmas pageant and um, pub sing. And, you know, it's got all of these elements of people coming. And, and highly traditional because there's things that happen every year. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. Despite the, the other content, they're always mm-hmm. in the show. Um, and they do, they essentially celebrate and investigate a culture and time period. Uh, usually a Western culture and time period surrounding the solstice, their traditions surrounding the solstice. Um, Christian or Jewish or Muslim or pre or pagan, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and this this year was uh, the Irish traditions in, 18, in the middle of the 19th century at the time of the famine. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, and in the past it's been, you know, a colonial Quebec, which is <laughs> oh, that's really good. interesting. There's actually a great... There's a great New Year's story uh, that's a traditional folk tale in, uh, that comes wow. from colonial Quebec called um, the Chasse Gallery. It's, it involves a flying canoe, um, which is an amazing thing to stage. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and there's songs associated with it, you know, like um, yeah. rowing songs. Oh, okay. Um, Rowing and drinking songs, essentially, you know, the things that keep a rhythm. Right, like right. Row, you know, like rowing, you, you need that. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the shows, the productions, surround one of those stories, or sometimes they surround, in the case of the Irish, they surround, like, the Great Migration, um, mostly to the U.S., or in the case of our show, to the U.S., because uh, that's more mm-hmm. meaningful, I mean, than... The, the migration to Australia um, uh, and and those kinds of events are meant to be they're, they're, first of all they're a combination of uh, professional folks and non-professional folks mm-hmm. um, at the end by the end of the show there's a hundred people on stage so it's it's a lot, you know, including mm-hmm. kids, mm-hmm. teenagers, octogenarians, you know, like it, it's it runs the it runs the gamut, and it's the people at the top, the designers, the directors, music directors, those people um, are all professionals um, with all of the attendant scholarship and you know right and experience, uh, and the the lead actors and musicians are all professionals though. 
um, most of them have some sort of experience with working with uh, community groups or okay, yeah. um, or just or just you know doing things with an audience. So folk singers, for instance, you know, are used to having people sing along with them. Right. right. Um, they're still pro- professionals, and they still you know have you know recording careers and all that other stuff that they do, but they. They part of their experience as professionals is not is not creating the the, the wall between right the mm-hmm. fourth wall, mm-hmm. um, and so the professional storytellers or actors who are part of this are all used to call and response and like dealing with you know the audience being a part of mm-hmm. the show, um, and that's as a designer, which is actually what. <laughs> Getting back to your question, as the design as a designer, that's important because it you can't have a darkened auditorium, right? Or when you do, you have to understand that it it necessarily has to light back up at some point, mm-hmm. um, if for no other reason, so that people can read their programs because that's where the lyrics to the song and the, the, the music is. Um, and it's very church-like in that way because the, the programs are also the hymnals, mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. also the, you know, the guide to the evening's uh, events. Um, and so you have to be able to, to read along. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and as part of it, then people go into the audience and they sing along and they like, you know, they literally deck the hall. Um, <laughs> you know, like, and that's part right. of the fun of it. <laughs> right. At the end of Act One of Every Rebels, the... Um, Everybody, the entire uh, performing ensemble comes off the stage and dances with the audience, leads the audience in dance out into the lobby. Um, and that is an expected and anticipated part of the experience. Okay. Um, and so you have to create, I have to create a warmth, a warm, you know, and a welcoming environment for that. Uh, that... Uh, does, that is different from a soliloquy in a spotlight, mm-hmm. in a single spotlight. Yeah. Uh, and there's something interesting about somehow, and this is in a big house, you know, an 1800 seat house, somehow oh, wow. 1800 people having the same or a greater connection to somebody delivering a monologue in the midst of a fully lit space then we would maybe get with the entire space being dark except for one very tight spotlight on that person delivering that same yeah that same piece of material um because the show does have that. It does have poems that are meant to be like a very personal like, you know, connection to the audience that is just one person delivering that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one person delivering that surrounded by everyone else and everyone else includes the audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a it's a it's a completely different mindset from what theaters train people to do and expect yeah and that's it takes it took me a long time to like get over that right um because that you know how can you have a personal connection to a person on stage if you're not able to just like 
look right at them and only focus on, on that one person and not be distracted by all of the other people, your fellow audience members, you know, and who are also trying to have that same personal connection. Right. But it's it's hard to have that connection between just yourself and that and the person delivering the material when you're distracted by all the other people who are actually trying to do the exact same thing. <laughs> Where and like that, so that's the argument, right? Like you right. have to like put the blinders on and just focus on that one person. When really, I think it's easier to do it when you understand that everybody around you is also trying to do the same thing. Yeah. And when you understand it, that not just everyone in the audience is trying to make to have that focus, but everyone on stage is trying to have that focus as well. And it really, I think it just creates a, a more interesting sense of focus. Mm. Uh, yeah, and like I said, it took me a while to get over yeah. the idea of a spotlight right. on somebody. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't, I'm not using the same techniques. Like, there's still a matter of like, yeah, you want to bring more, a little more focus and light onto the person who's delivering the thing, but you don't want to completely dissolve the rest of the environment. Right, right. Away because it's about having a communal experience. And I just think we forget that in theaters. Which is supposed to be a communal experience. That, I find that very interesting because I think that comes up in student matinees really often mm -hmm. because they don't have preconceived notions about what theater is or is right. not supposed to be. Right. And there is a level of frustration on often on our parts, like, don't these kids know how to behave? Yeah. Didn't somebody teens from like, this is what theater is? But when you think about, when you think about the nature of the choices that you make in theater, of all the choices that it is possible to make, lighting, production design-wise, and all of this, and bringing the community in, and what that even means to you, specifically, like, especially big regional theaters, which have the weight of expectation right. on them, right. and the weight of history on them, right. they just shut off, I, not, I won't say necessarily arbitrarily, but it can feel like that, um, a bunch of choices that, that are actually available to you, but just haven't been done. And then they just assume that everybody's on the, who comes to their theater is there because they're on the same page. And of course, that usually works out, except well, when the children than, are there. Well, I, and I would say that it work, it's working out less and less so. I agree. Absolutely agree. I think it's part of the problem for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's another. So, so that's a that's I, I just that's an example, but that's an extreme example because that's actually a, an example of uh, an experience where people are expecting. Well, okay, the that's communal fair. experience, yeah, right. right? Okay, so um, there's been, there's certainly been at um, at Woolly at Woolly Mammoth, um, an idea of trying to create a more communal experience for the audience, um, where. Uh, you know the orientation of the audience, the 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 layout of the audience in relation to the stage um, is changeable and mm -hmm. is changed for you know each show depending on what the needs of the show are. Um, and there was one, and you know, and it works to varying degrees of of, of success. Um, and there's one in particular that I thought one of my designs in particular that I thought really worked well, which was the. Um, production of We Are Proud to Present, a presentation mm. of the Herrero 
anyway, it goes on, and I yeah. don't remember what it all is. Yeah, um, it's like a paragraph. Yeah, it's a paragraph. And the house lights didn't turn off completely until it was probably about two thirds of the way through the show, and by you know by design and 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 because in part because the actors are supposed to be an environment that's a rehearsal hall like right. it wants to just it just wants to feel less less designed and more like just a natural place where things are happening but it's still a show you know like that all of those weird fine lines between yeah. between performance and rehearsal and public and private and all that um, and one of and this one of the things that I realized as I was kind of working through the design and, and you know in tech creating the design uh, for real is that by leaving the house lights on it actually created for me as a lighting designer a much longer arc experiential arc and uh, artistic arc because I have this thing this other element which is a fully lit room that in most instances is not part of the equation at all in terms mm -hmm. of the design right. like it just because you just don't the house goes to half before the show starts and the opening event of the show is the house going out going away you know turning out and by leaving it up I had this other element this other design element mm. that I have never really had before it was really exciting like like I was it, and I was able to play with the level of it and oh, yeah. like how much do we, the audience, want to feel present? How much do we want to feel distanced? You know, all that kind of thing. And I was, you know, able to play with that in a way that it's just, it's just a really exciting design element. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, of course, once they went out, they had to stay out for the rest of the show because mm -hmm. like that... The, there's something so jarring about them turning back on again that you can't do it. But it's really easy to kind of like ride this this kind of wave uh, curve down from from full to zero over the course of a long period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when they did go out, it was you know it was a major event in the show, right? Uh, which which just which made it even more so because, like I said, I had this other element that I could use to create a, a stronger a, a stronger event. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's just that's just like it's so weird. Just don't turn the lights off. <laughs> like duh. <laughs> right. <laughs> have you have you seen Tempest? No. Shakespeare. No. Um, there is a moment at the very end. Speaking of how jarring it can be if you haven't already built it into the vocabulary mm -hmm. of the show, mm -hmm. at the very end, when Prospero is giving his final soliloquy, the lights come up on the house right. to extend the metaphor that what has happened is theater, right. blah, right. blah, blah. Right. But a lot of people who worked on the show and a lot of people who saw the show hate that moment because it's a reveal of, like, you've just done a bunch of magical things and now you're seeing the bits and pieces that make the magical things work. And then the house lights go out again. Yeah, and that's a weird, that's a weird notion. 
Uh, yeah. I mean, because I've tried that. There's, you just, there's always, like, you get to this metaphor of theater is life and life is theater and we're part of theater and all, you know, blah, blah, blah. Ah, uh, well, McSweeney's so been exploring that yeah. for his last couple yeah. of productions. So. Yeah. Um, but there's this, you know, I've worked on, I worked on a, a Three Penny Opera oh. earlier this season, this year. And then also um, The Mother Courage that was at Arena. Yeah. Both shows, the, the Three Penny as well as Mother Courage, played with the idea of turning the house lights oh, on. Oh, you have to. You have to during, when dealing with Brecht. Yeah. Well, you don't have to. You well, don't I mean, have yeah. to do it. I, I think if you're in, engaging um, honestly with the ideas that he's attempting to force the audience to yeah. deal with, in, deliberately making sure that they're involved yeah. is, is something that you ought to do, or at least consider. Yeah. And and it's it's that there's something so weird because, you know, the idea of what's Brechtian anymore doesn't uh, yeah. because everything's Brechtian now. Um, oh yeah, we can, on one level, and that's you know the talk about that conversation. <laughs> um, but you know, you turn the house lights on, or you point lights at the audience. You know, audience blinders, whatever you're going to do, it puts the audience on guard, and it's really easy to alienate, not in a Brechtian way, right. the audience, <laughs> right. By doing that, mm-hmm. and it doesn't draw, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, get to the point or the change of attitude that you want the audience to have of the of inclusion or just a different kind of thinking or whatever, yeah. a different kind of watching, uh, a different experiential level, because we are especially savvy, savvier theatergoers are programmed to not buy it, right. Like, oh yeah, they're trying that trick. Mm-hmm. Not gonna, it's not gonna get me. Um, so it's a real, it's a, it's really hard to pull off. Yeah, really hard to pull off. And sometimes it's easier. Not, I mean, it's de- it's always easier not to. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's sometimes more effective not to do it or what? to find other ways to do it. Um, I mean, yeah. to me, that yeah. goes to the. What I find fascinating about Brecht, I mean, obviously, as a Germanist, I've dealt with, I've sure. had to deal with Brecht on a fundamental level, but because people take alienation, the, the techniques that Brecht used to alienate his audiences, they continue to use and call it Brechtian, yeah. but that's inaccurate because it's it's like the structuralist definition of poetic language is language that is different than normal patterns and constructions of language it doesn't right. have there's nothing prescriptive if you go if, if you look at poetry over the history of what is considered poetry you cannot come up with a single definition of it that poetry. fits yeah. over and over like it sure. does it have to have meter no obviously right. not does it have to have rhyme no obviously right. not the right. oldest version of it is the in the old testament and there's none of that right. in it. and what brecht is touching on is exactly that like what is Brechtian alienation is to do what is not expected of you in a way that gets through your guard. Right, right. Which requires that these days, as you were pointing out, like people are much more canny about that. Like movies, right. movies, and themselves, movies that aren't where you're not even like interacting with the audience directly, like Fight Club and things like that. Like it's become the norm in. This is one of the things that I really loved about like Soderbergh's. Mm-hmm. Ocean's Eleven stuff. Mm-hmm. He was a super aggressive about the use of camera and the styling and the editing, and sure. nobody noticed because it was cool. Right. And now it's a lot harder to do that because right. the bar has been changed. Right. So I totally hear what you're saying. Like yeah. it, it, 
it should be on the table because everything needs to be on the table when you're dealing with something like that. But it's not as simple as just, oh, we'll leave it up because people will throw it out the window. Like, yeah, I saw like a magician doing a bad trick. Like, well, I absolutely saw where you put that card, so I'm over it. <laughs> well, have you ever seen, I mean, there's, there's some, one of the best magic shows I've ever seen is the Penn and Teller show that's, that they do in Vegas where everything is, the boxes are all glass. So oh, you yeah. can see everything that's happening. Except what's the magic of it is that you still can't figure out how the hell they're doing yeah. it. Be- even though they're showing you everything. Yeah. Um, um, or just the fact that it actually does take skill to contort yourself into... Like, you actually have to do something. And it's not just, like, a trick. Right. It actually is something that's skillful. And I think that's where... That's where we... Th- that's where we get drawn into theater magic of being this thing where we can fool people it's you still have to have skill mm-hmm. to do it and you still have to pull it off you can't just rely on the technology and the mirrors and the smoke to pull it off for you you actually have to the performer has to pull it off yeah uh, which is it's easy to forget that the more technological a, a piece of theater or rock concert or whatever yeah. becomes, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 that that reminds me of two things actually. Um, one is I was obsessed as a kid growing up with those like Fox had those specials about behind the magicians uh-huh. and all of that. But they 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 also did people. I don't I I don't even know where I don't even remember where I saw it. But it was on television and it was this like seventy year old Argentinian man. Mm-hmm. So he's speaking through an interpreter. Um, and who knows how real any of this is because it's on television to begin with. So, but. His trick was a card trick. It was like moving the queens around or whatever. But but he repeated the trick like four times. So he did it and you're like, okay, whatever, that's a card trick. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And that's but that that was his pattern. It's like, okay, that was a card trick. Let's do it again. This time I will do it slower. And then he, he slows it down until you don't think it's at all possible. Like no human being yeah, can, can move fast live? enough to do what yeah. he needs to do. And right. yet he's still doing the exact same trick. You're right. like what is going on? Right. But yeah. speaking of like not uh, of using technology, letting the technology sort of trick you into thinking that you don't need to do the other stuff, the basic stuff that leads up to it. I see that a lot, especially at smaller some smaller theaters. And it's in order to make this really personal, it happens at my community <laughs> youth theater. Yeah, a lot. Like. The artistic director, or the we call him the producer. Like he, we right. only do one show. It's a community. It's literally like children, and no one right. gets turned away. But uh, we know we we did Shrek. Like we have eight foot ceilings. Yeah. And he's like, "Do you think we can do Mary Poppins?" No, Dave. That actually is an important. Uh, there's there's some a couple important things that happen in Mary Poppins that. Right. You can't do with you just you simply cannot do with eight foot ceilings. But even just holding a, an umbrella over your head, <laughs> that's it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> you're out of space. <laughs> but we and, but at the same time we've done some really tricky things. Like we made we levitated the beast during mm-hmm. the Beauty and the Beast transformation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We made Frumacera fly out of the bed during mm-hmm. Fiddler on the Roof. Um, but there are definitely times when like we could do it. Yeah, it's like or or we could just like trust the audience. Right. And do this other thing really well, and not right. try to not make this technical element take over. Right, right. It can be simpler and still effective. Speaking of fiddler, 
this is a quick aside. I don't because I don't know if we'll get in because in the rest of the conversation, I doubt I'll be able to yeah. get it in. But that was where I almost met you for the first time. Oh yeah, sure. Because I was I was overhiring with Arena. Uh, the day that the first day that you came in to see the set as it was being built, so I was Got it. going down the ladder and going on break. Got it. <laughs> Because you were talking with Luton about all of that stuff, about which I think is hilarious. The disaster that was about to happen. Yeah, I mean that. <laughs> speaking of technical ambition, like that crazy set. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy set. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a. Um, you know, I did talk to people about about that set. You know, it's a. For those who haven't seen it, it's a. There's. A, what I can only describe as an abstracted, broken apart, you know, uh, spiral staircase over over the arena, which, from a lighting standpoint, is both really amazing and also completely a impossible. Disaster. Yeah. Um, and the fiddler at the beginning of the show sits at the end, or almost the very end of this of this spiral, and that's. You know, there's your metaphor, right? Um, <laughs> and and it's really exciting because he, you don't. I mean, we lit, it was lit such that you weren't meant to notice it when you walk in. You know, I didn't draw any attention to it, mm-hmm. um, and certainly people saw him, right? You know, but enough people didn't see him that it was enough of a. It wasn't a shock so much as just a fun little surprise, like mm-hmm. a little mm-hmm. a little Easter egg. Um, and that's we should say. I, if people don't know the show, they might also not know that that space is in the round. Oh yeah, well. and that isn't yeah, and it's in the round, and it's um, and you know that's there you go. That's a that's a community event. Anything that's in the arena, at, in the Fitch Handler and arena is is a community event, and that's that's how it is. That's how Molly Smith defines the shows in that space, mm-hmm. um, and defines the audience as the community, and in a show like. Fiddler, which ends with a pogrom and people leaving this the shtetl to come to among amongst other places America, um, and many people in the audience, especially for a show like that, are descendants of those people, if not you know not those people specifically, but people right in that line yeah. uh, in that line. They actually are part of the community of the show and there's something important about seeing those people as the backdrop to the show uh it's just a which again is like you don't want to get too dark because mm-hmm. as soon as you get too dark you lose the rest of the community mm-hmm. um even in the smaller more internal moments and it's impossible in that space anyway. Anyway, yeah. It's, so it, it's, <laughs> it's you know, it's done of its own volition. But right. I wouldn't want, in a show like that, I wouldn't even want to try. Right. Uh, and in some ways, I actually, uh, you know, from my standpoint as a designer, I would have pushed it to be even more open than, mm-hmm. than it already was. Um, that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's collaboration with the director right, right there. There you so. go, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the interesting things about theater design, specifically. Like, you talk about trying to trying to have a community, but in some ways the space itself 
works against you. Like one of the things that people routinely say about Harmon Hall, which is a beautiful sure. space in many ways, but it presents as a very severe front to the audience. Oh, yeah. It falls off a cliff and like, yeah. this is where you can be and this is where you can't be. Right. Um, that even Michael Kahn has said over and over again, like he doesn't always know how to make the play sing in that space because, mm -hmm. because the, right away, it kind of doesn't want you to. Right. And the most successful shows in that space have been uh, the ones where they put the audience on the stage, like the, yeah. um, the National Theater of Scotland. Yeah, I was just going to say that. That was in there. Blackwatch yeah, was Blackwatch, right. amazing for that reason precisely. Yeah, because that would not have, that show would not have worked, I don't think, as just a proscenium kind of experience. No, yeah. I, it's not, and I believe it, they workshopped it at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. And when they go, I, we were talking about this with them. I was only I was there the second time around, not the first time around. Right. But the people were saying like normally what they do is it's in a warehouse. Yeah. So, so they can do whatever they want. Yeah. In being in the Harmon is actually smaller than they're used to. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, yeah, you could add like fifty feet between the towers is, mm -hmm. is what they're used to because it's designed to be in. Um, in a space that can get people all the way around it. Right. Both massive and intimate. Yeah, it's Which one is, of the best things yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. Massive and intimate, that's that's like that's the best kind of theater. You know, so oh, so yeah. big that you feel <clears throat> overwhelmed by it, but so emotional or communal mm -hmm. or whatever that you can't help but feeling a connection to the people on stage and the people around you. Yeah, so you mentioned the Washington Revels as an 1800. Yeah, I mean, it's in Lisner Auditorium. Oh, okay, I was going to say, well, that so, was my next one. Uh, yeah. yeah, and that's an 1800 seat right. house. Gotcha. Uh, and for this, for this run, which was two weekends uh, at the beginning of December, it was, it was full. Mm -hmm. And it, when everybody stands up and sings, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds great. And when, you know, one of the things they do is, um, Dona nobis pacem, which is you know, oh, you know, yeah. around, you know, and they do it as a round. Oh, it's perfect. Uh, I mean, it's probably three, designed that way, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, you know, with three sections of the audience and like a cannon or whatever. You know, and you just listen to it. You stop singing. You sing along to be a part of it, and then at some point, it's almost necessary to stop singing as a member of the audience to understand, to fully understand how everything fits together and how mm -hmm. you're a part of. Not just your subgroup, but how your subgroup is part of the greater group. That's really, and then how beautiful it is when it when it when it happens and it works and it it always works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's the sweet spot for sure. Yeah. Um, so there's this other thing about the ritual that I that I didn't really hint at, but that's kind of one of my fascinations about theater, and this is, I didn't make this up, it was, um, I don't know what the fuck it was who came up with this idea of, <laughs> of, you know, theater being, theater and stories in theater being a ritual that's been interrupted, you know, like a wedding oh. that's stopped, mm -hmm. uh, a funeral that's interrupted by some other event, Hamlet is a ritual that's interrupted, you know, it's mm -hmm. full of them. It's all sorts of rituals that get interrupted. And that's where theater lies, is in the interruption. Uh, Interesting. 
that's where drama that's where conflict yeah. lies that's know? yeah um, and that's always been my fascination with community events because the act of going to theater or to church or to a concert or to the movies or whatever is whether we understand it or not is a ritual in and of itself you know like we do things that we don't we're, we're taking ourselves out of our quotidian and doing something different mm-hmm. uh, where other people are doing something identical right filing in sitting in the seats you know doing clapping together being quiet together mm-hmm. um, putting our coats in the same places you know like all of these things that are just yeah. like yeah. like they are ritualistic like even though their habit or tradition or something like that or just just social norms mm-hmm. um, they're still ritual and there's something about that event in itself getting interrupted, which I don't, which is where I wish more theater lived. Mm. In not just the story, the narrative being about a ritual that's being interrupted, but that the performance itself or the event itself is being interrupted. And that's where the that's where the conflict and drama lies. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, like we are proud to present, I think, attempted to do that. And I think they succeed, it succeeded in many ways um, to do that, or at least played with that notion. And, you know, that's the difference between like the rebels and theater, mm-hmm. like theater, theater, uh, is that if we could insert that interruption in more often, it would include us, the audience, in a really uh, exciting way that I would, I mean, I would just love to see that. Yeah, <laughs> I, no, I, I think see that more. I don't know where it is. I mean, I know like Dog yeah. and Pony tries to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly part of our, <clears throat> our, our train of thought and how we think about mm-hmm. creating an experience. Um, but I, I think part of part of what makes me bored about theater is when there's not the interruption, right? Yeah. And too much is taken for yeah. granted, and there's no effort yeah. to. I am. Um, you know, some of the best, some of the most exciting things that we've ever read about that happen in theaters are actual performances being inter- interrupted, mm. right? like John Wilkes Booth. Um, like that's like. That's great. That's great theater in and of itself. I mean, it wasn't a great thing that happened, but right. um, theater fires are like so, mm-hmm. so um, such great stories, and like what happens? They're terrible stories. Like none of them are yeah. good. They're all tragedies. Right. There's um. So one of the when I was at Case Western, I took I actually took my first theater course because of some general education requirement. Yeah. It was like the history of theater or whatever. But the the theater teacher gave us didn't make us all do it because I didn't do it but gave us an opportunity either for extra credit or something to do a performance of a short piece that, of their own devising mm-hmm. and they did it in groups and most of them were as painful as you would expect from college freshmen sure but so and this would have been 2001 which is culturally significant because you had these two guys who uh, it was I think it was three people 
working together and they were they were presenting a scene and they were talking about Columbine mm-hmm. and all of a sudden one person in the middle of the class who turns out to have been wearing the long black duster or whatever like throws his chair right. over and just like interrupts the whole thing and you knew in the back of your mind that you're safe and that this wasn't real that this was obviously intended to be part of it but right. it struck home that interruption of the classroom setting and of the right. performance right made that made what they were doing much more viscerally yeah and then it came real. out of inside of the it didn't come out of the inside of the performance it came out of the inside of the audience right it broke through both sets of things and so I totally agree the effectiveness of of the piece and can can be great and one of the things that was really interesting about um, I really gotta stop saying that there are better words there are more words English has a lot of words Um, then ironically interesting interesting (laughs) Um, uh, we did a trip when I was in Germany, we did a trip that was very similar to the sounds like very similar to the one that you took to Stratford, sure. except that we went to Berlin, and uh, we we saw an opera, we saw a modern dance, we saw a spoken word performance, we saw a classical theater, and we saw a cabaret. Uh, was it a cabaret? Yes, it was a cabaret. Um, cabarets in German tradition, there's a cabaret and there's a cabaret. Mm-hmm. And cabaret is a bunch of circus performers doing things, and a cabaret is someone making political commentary in a sort of like a stand-up-y performance way. So um, that's where I had uh, martini, but the first time I discovered that when you say martini in Germany, they give you vermouth. Yeah, that's what they do in England. <laughs> well, they give you half vermouth and half gin. It's yeah. dreadful. <laughs> um, but... We saw at the Berliner Ensemble, which was Brecht's theater, sure. yeah. um, we saw the resistible rise of Arturo Ui. Mm-hmm. And it was their, I don't know, their nod to it was to have a performer who was not actually in the show, but outside on the theater balcony was delivering one of Hitler's speeches. Arturo Ui is about yeah. Hitler, yeah. a very thinly yeah. veiled yeah. reference to him as a right. Chicago gangster. Right. Um, and this they, is, which is great because I, the first time I saw I grew up outside of Chicago and the first time mm. I saw that it was at ART um, so it you know had all of the <laughs> bullshit scholarship behind right. it yeah, of course. With, um, something associated with Harvard University yeah um, sure <laughs> and he had never been to Chicago ever Really? <laughs> yeah, and he just wrote it based on his imagination. Of oh what yeah, oh, Chicago yeah. is, and it's clear, like in the writing, like you know, like everybody's. Anyway, so it's it's just a fascinating thing to watch because it's it's already it's caricature upon caricature. Yes, which is just yeah. Okay, go on. Sorry, which I, I mean, but that's to me that it made it really interesting because not being actually based on what Chicago gangsters were really like just makes his metaphor that much more obvious. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is Chicago gangsters. I'm using right. large quotation yeah. marks. Yeah. Um, but there, so you're walking up to the theater and you're hearing this guy. Um, now, it was all in German, obviously, but we didn't really, so we didn't understand it as well as we could. This was real, this was like halfway through the year. Um, but if you're a German, you're like, what the hell is that guy saying on the balcony that's ridiculous what's happening here and it was was it recognizably one of hitler's speeches 
Uh, he, he had speech patterns. The guy was wearing the brown suit. Oh, okay. So I it mean, was it was it was got it. Yeah. Got it. And I mean the the and the production. So the German theater tradition. I'm sure you're familiar with this, but. I feel like I should talk to our listeners about this, but I don't know. In a, I, I don't know what um, your experience with the German theater tradition is, but they do. For primarily, they work in rep, mm-hmm, um, sure. and they will they will have very much like an opera company. They will have a show in the bag for many years. Oh, decades. Yeah, literally decades. In this case, yeah. um, the production that they were putting on is from Heiner Müller, um, who had been dead for years by the time we saw it, sure. and who devised it in the seventies. And they pull it out um, for whatever the reason that year. We didn't, it was in 2000, that was early 2001, so I have no idea, like, what made them bring that out for that year. But it was, the night Chicago died is just played over and over and over again, which is obviously not something that Brecht would ever have thought of, because that song wasn't composed until 30 years after he was right. dead. Right. But, and it's just repetitive, constant. It's the only underscore, I think, that and real mechanical sounds to it. But and we were we were watching this without being able to understand what was happening because we mm-hmm. barely spoke German at that point. Like we got the gist of it eventually. <laughs> so the whole thing was really just striking and constantly what you would expect from Brett's theater company, like someone who is were taking you, what you were expecting and right. twisting it again. But were you? Because you say it was a from from. From Heinrich Müller's uh, when he was the artistic director of the Berliner yeah. Ensemble, um, so it, his what he was doing, I assume, would have been some sort of reaction to East Berlin politics at the time and the wall and all that, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah, which, in the seventies, it could have been domestic terrorism too. Okay, so like what? So yeah, so what could did you know? Or have any sense of what he was commenting on at when the show was originally created? No. I, okay. I do now. I do now, which okay. is why because you've looked it up. Yeah, I looked it up, and I've done. I've learned a little bit more about Heinrich Müller and read the plays that he wrote, and right. I know a lot more about German history in the seventies and mm-hmm. the Armee Faction and all of that stuff, uh-huh. like. That stuff is super interesting, and fuck. Um, that stuff is a story that Germans don't want to tell about themselves again. Right. And which is why he would have been doing it. So sure. now, reflecting on it, I am in awe of it. But at the time, it was a bunch of people speaking German, and I, I like, I'd studied World War II since I was a little child. Like since right. I was in fourth grade, this was the first books that I ever read because that's what was around me, and that's how I recognized the shape of the show. And there's the meta theatrical stuff about there. He goes to an old Shakespearean guy to teach him how to speak, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but now is what, when I can understand what he was attempting. At the time, I did not. Did you have a sense during, the, during your watching of the, or your experience of the show, that the audience was moved or was experiencing something that they were supposed to... Ex- there was some intended experience that the audience was actually experiencing. Yeah, I... I it was a really traditional... Other than the guy speaking on the outside, like, there was yeah. this, like, the lights are down, the lights are yeah. up, 
weird things were happening on stage and it didn't necessarily I don't feel like I don't recall well, the you audience. can feel it you yeah know, and I don't recall that feeling at all okay. like and I've been to I've been to the Berliner Ensemble since then and however good they're doing they are putting on good shows I mean right they're very talented people but some of that original like force right. is definitely I mean it's definitely lost for right. sure I mean there's I mean that's there's an argument there for not ever putting something in rep in that way. Right, right, yeah. Without rewriting it or, you know, really revisiting it. Yeah. Without putting it on again, without showing it to, to a public again. Which is, yeah, I, you know, because, you know, the Metropolitan Opera does that too. I mean, there's, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, for them it's, it's about the performances anyway. It's not about right the fifty-year-old painted backdrops. <laughs> Working on the Nutcracker is actually yeah, there, yeah, there you go. Very much like that because yeah. and doing when I was at the Alley doing the Christmas Carol mm -hmm. too, and when I worked at ATL doing Dracula. Oh, that's its own because that's oh, man, it's so cool. Is it? Because everyone I've ever talked to about that says it's like. Such a goddamn drag. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I I was only there for one year, oh, okay. so to me it was all still cool. Yeah. And the day that I watched it was the student matinee. Oh, sure. So they're and all that's a totally different experience. Time. Yeah. Right. That's really. It's there are definitely times I'm like, man, we should really pay more attention to how the kids are reacting. Oh sure. Because they are reacting to things that adults are not reacting to. In some ways, it's a really good thing. Like, oh, we should have. That's a thing in the show that yeah. isn't getting. That's a beat that doesn't get enough attention. Right, right. And yeah. it, 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 I haven't said this with a whole lot of people, but like I, I don't like seeing a play once, uh, as as repetitive and completely boring. Um, seeing one show forty times mm -hmm. is there are, for shows that are rich and that deserve contemplation. For I the right shows, yeah. That's a perfectly acceptable yeah. thing to say. <laughs> it's like I don't, the Farnsworth invention does not get better with repetition. Uh, Aaron Sorkin's stupid yeah. play about television, sure. but Sarah Rules Eurydice is rewarding yeah. every single night, and I still didn't understand it all by the end of it. Um, and but that level of repetition on the right show, I don't feel like I actually understood the show until like the tenth or eleventh time. Well, I saw that's it. also a show that's about language. Yes. Before it's even been put on its feet, it's about language. You know, it's it's yeah. meant to be an ode to music and language. It's yeah. still the best thing that I've ever been involved with. Yeah, that's that her best play, I think. I I agree. I read it after after I saw Eurydice. After I did Eurydice, not I saw it. Um, I went back and read all of her stuff, and it's like it's, I, there's a kernel of really interesting stuff in everything that she does but I think Eurydice is the one where she hits the nail so wonderfully on the head by being so indirect and gloriously yeah. elliptical well and there's there's a, um, the one thing that I truly appreciate about that play in particular but Sarah's plays in general is that it is so unprescriptive in its stage directions oh my gosh yeah. and it's in the sense that they're 
their po- the stage directions are poems, poems in and yeah. of, of yeah. themselves. You know, it's uh, you know, like he makes a house out of string. <laughs> string. That's exactly what I was saying. Uh, it can take a long time to make a house out of string, <laughs> and that's it. Like that's that's, that's the, the stage direction. Yeah. Um, and so it gives you so much. How much is a long time? You know how, what makes it a house? What kind of string is it? You know, like all of those things. It answers or it asks, or uh, creates so many more questions than it actually answers. Yeah. Uh, which is just like, as a designer, that's amazing. That's amazing. That's actually it's somebody pointing. Who I was talking to somebody who who talked about. I think it was Michael Dove um, who was talking about the you at one point in like the thirties to fifties there was a, a tradition of printing the plays to be read. So that when you have notoriously picky. Playwrights right. like right. Albie and Pinter, right. who's who are very precise in their stage direction, uh, and that can be, like you said, very prescriptive and ultimately really dull. Like, right. I don't know that he, Pinter was a smart guy, but I don't necessarily know that he always understood exactly what was going on in all of his plays. The, the whole point of his language is that he takes really bland language and turns it into a really threatening thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can happen in a lot of ways, not just in the way that he wrote. So reading Sarah's stage direction, like, and the the stage I wish I could remember the stage direction for the elevator where she's, where that it is raining in the elevator and she's right. carrying an umbrella, which is the, if you know the story about Eurydice, is like, just no perfect metaphor for everything that about memory and her right. affection right. and and all of that. But you read that as a as a designer, like. That's a great image, and how on earth am I going to get forty gallons of water to, right. to do that? And that's what makes Shakespeare, I think, a lot of a favorite of a lot of people is that Shakespeare doesn't have stage direction. Well, of course not, but it's all written into the text because it's written into the text. Yeah, yeah. which I, I mean, think the, is interesting. You know, the best like cues in Shakespeare are written in. Yeah, <laughs> are written in. Yeah, Dawn is written in I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. because there was no. When you don't have something, you have to put it in. Right, and they didn't have it. So, in order for us to know that it's dawn, they have to say Second. in some poetic way that it's that right. the sky's breaking. Uh, so yeah, it it frees. It's very freeing as a designer because then you um, you don't have to necessarily make it literal. Mm-hmm. It's it can it can be abstracted even more uh, as long as it gets to the idea of mm-hmm. dawn. Or two o'clock in the morning, or whatever the, right. whatever it is. Yeah, it's very free. But you know, opera's the same way. You know, there's a, a good modern theater's the same way. Yeah, yeah I, the same way. You I, like, you yeah. don't. If it's well written and not overly prescriptive, then you don't. You can do whatever you want. You know, there's this like fallacy of like how to design for dance versus how to design for opera versus how to design for a straight play versus how to design for a musical and it's it's well it's a fallacy because it's just not it's up to the director to to decide ultimately what the style is and yet you can say that it's you know a very staid kind of looking not a whole lot of opinions are being made by right. the design or the acting for that matter. <laughs> uh and call that design for straight plays. 
Right, right. <laughs> you know, or you can add a lot of movement to, you know, contemporary theater and call it design for dance. You know, it's just, yeah, there's too many, too many directors get into that thing of like, well, I want it to look like a musical. I want it to look like <laughs> right, yeah. an opera. And it's just, that's just no way to think at all. That could be a much longer conversation. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are at our hour, actually, a little bit over, um, which a very awesome discussion. Uh, I hope it was good for you. Oh, totally, <laughs> totally. Uh, uh, yeah, I like to give everyone an opportunity if there's anything that you want people to see or is there anything that you want to oh well oh uh when is this being one of you that's a good question Um, i'm not going to plug fiddler on the roof if it's it's um the probably (laughs) sold out anyway okay well there you go (laughs) it would be like probably the earliest it would be would be the 17th of january oh okay great um well uh cherokee woolly mammoth i think is going to be really this is all this is all without me actually knowing what it actually is yet. You know, oh, it's yeah, not like yeah. we're in rehearsal right. at this point. It's not uh, which is you know, this is like doing one of those things where you, it's a season preview and people ask like, what are you excited about for this season? <laughs> yeah. And you go and I'll say what I you know, what I'm you know, in August I'm excited about and then by the time we actually get to production in March, I'm like, Oh my god, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Just not to say that <laughs> anything is going to be terrible, but I think Cherokee is going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm really, you know, I'm more interested in uh, this production of the originalist that I'm designing in Arena, which is, oh, uh, you know, it's about Scalia. Yeah, and I'm just, I, I'm. This is like, I'm more interested in who comes to see it and how they react than the show itself. Sure, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's certainly, yeah, it could land like a bombshell, yeah. no question about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. So that, yeah, they're, they're, those are my plugs. Oh, All right. At least for my work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can plug other people's work, too. Yeah. I don't really care. Yeah. Uh, All right. Thank you so much. Cool. You're very welcome. For your time, and yeah. <laughs> Time to go out into the rain. Yeah. That's Christmas. It's winter. <laughs> it is. A couple more degrees and we'd have a snowstorm. Oh, I don't want one.